Hello, and welcome to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon. Adam, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Glad to hear it. Um, I'm going to skip talking about your car this week because we have a special guest uh, joining us. So this week, we have Kyle Turner uh, to discuss the uh, changing theater-going experience, potentially the collapsing uh, theatrical window. And uh, for those that don't know Kyle, I will like let him just introduce himself. So Kyle, welcome to Floor 9. Thank you so much for having me, Scott, Richard, Adam. I'm so excited to be here. Um, my name is Kyle Turner. I'm a freelance writer uh, and film critic. Uh, my work has been featured on Slate, NPR, and The New York Times. Um, and I love movies. Um, and I love ruining movies for other people as well. That's, uh, what I studied in college. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly invested in a wide range of experiences and ways that we can engage with film, uh, whether at home or in the theater. Fantastic. And we're super excited to have you here uh, on Floor 9 talking about this as, I would say, an expert in the space. But uh, listeners, you might not understand the little bit of background of, of, of why we're here. And that is because I was awoken to a Twitter thread at 2 a.m. between Kyle and Adam uh, discussing this exact topic. Uh, and it was such a fun conversation on Twitter. We thought we'd bring it to you here on Floor 9. So with that, Adam, as the initiator of that Twitter thread... Do you just want to kick off this conversation uh, with you know a little context as to what you were talking about, and then we can kind of dive right in from there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually great timing because that conversation happened a few weeks ago, um, sort of uh, spurred on by I think I had just finished watching uh, The Green Knight uh, at home, uh, and was also thinking about that, and also thinking about um, you know some. Uh, comments that were coming out of uh, the the uh, press tours for Dune at the time, uh, and you know, so th- there was a there was a little bit of a spark there. But it's a great time to be having this conversation now um, because we're recording this right after Labor Day weekend when uh, Shang Chi single handedly. Uh, brought back uh, the theatrical window, perhaps, uh, where setting uh, records for a Labor Day opening weekend uh, for uh, for a film and doing that in the middle of, you know, this sort of, uh, I think, uncertain time for for theaters uh, because of the Delta variant and, uh, you know, constantly shifting windows and and release strategies and all of that. Shang-Chi, at least on the first weekend, set uh, set an opening record. Um, So uh, it's it's a really prescient time to be having this conversation, I would say. And so, Kyle, knowing that you were the first one to respond to Adam on on Twitter, thinking about uh, this the changing movie going experience, the theatrical experience, um, I'm curious what what are your thoughts on this record setting box office weekend? I think that's an indicator that people still crave the communal experience of going to a movie, um, and I think there are. I'm a little bit ambivalent about that because on the one hand, I think it does um, sort of vindicate me in a little bit, a little bit in terms of uh, maintaining a certain kind of theatrical window. On the other hand, Marvel movies like these and tentpole movies like these are responsible for the um, shrinking number of mid-budget uh, f- uh, studio films that used to exist in the 90s and the aughts. And so what you're seeing is a desire to preserve these theatrical windows, I think, primarily 
for the tentpole movies rather than smaller films that will continue to get dumped onto VOD or streaming. And what to me is important about maintaining a certain kind of theatrical window is for those smaller films to have some sort of chance in this broader marketplace. So I think it's it's a, a little bit of a mixed bag. We we often I think conflate just movies as a into into something pretty flat. When um, clearly, uh, to your point, the reason that Disney is holding uh, this theatrical window for Marvel is because Marvel can still turn out the the get people's butts in seats and make a ton of money on at least opening weekend. I have, I think we have a lot of everyone's going to be watching very carefully to see what the fall off in week two and week three looks like. Um, since we know Black Widow, which should have a different release strategy did fall off rather quickly, but that was also available at home. So I think, you know, if Shang-Chi can hold on to that uh, momentum coming out of Labor Day weekend uh, and generally, generally good reviews for the film, um, that that might in, you know, further encourage Disney to, that it's okay. We we can just go back to the way we used to do things. We don't have to like rethink our entire business model as we kind of have been doing. Um, but I think that it's interesting because on the studio side of things, their interest in holding this theatrical exclusivity really is around the the blockbusters because that's where all the money comes from. But from a fan perspective, obviously you sometimes like a blockbuster and sometimes they're fun and you want to have that experience. But it does seem like the more important aspect or the thing that you might be more invested in is actually those, like you said, those mid-budget movies and and the sort of more artistic films that you want to have that theatrical experience for, but that even pre-COVID had been getting squeezed out of theaters and then sent straight to streaming. And what's also interesting about this example is that as opposed to Black Widow, it is coming two and a half, almost three months after that um, dual streaming or or premium v- uh, VOD uh, and theatrical release, um, and I think we the the discourse and the comfortability around um, the way that we're negotiating COVID is constantly changing. So hypothetically, this could be a fluke. This could be like we had this one moment. We're going to push it really, really hard. Um, and uh, this is your chance to kind of show up, basically. And for all we know, in a month or so, depending on what cases look like and depending on, on what they look like, regionally speaking, um, we may not see this again. And uh, the and various studios will have to, again, reconfigure or, or reconsider what their business model is going to be. There really are, are, are like four pillars within this entire kind of theatrical window and movie going experience, right? There are like the, the, the actual people and consumers, there are the movie studios, then there are the uh, movie theaters, and then now it's like the streaming services. And it's like starting to see like of those four kind of players in the space, like which ones have the most leverage when it comes to, um, you know, making money, right? It seems like it's, it's, it's starting to go in two directions, which is either like as a customer, like you demand, um, either like a high end experience or easier access. So either in a theater or in your own home, or you're like on like the Disney side, the Netflix side, the HBO side, where you have control over that distribution and, that audience directly and it's 
potentially more profitable for you to kind of go as a, as an individual owner of a streaming service to go through like that direct to consumer window. Um, and so I think these are like all like the four different factors that are now being like integrated into what this theatrical window is because like all of these forces are, are kind of pulling in different directions, um, for what it was, you know, in the past couple of years. Well, and I think it's not necessarily about, and this is the the issue that Disney is running into um, with Scarlett Johansson and some some other stars. It's not necessarily about profitability. Disney Plus is not more profitable for for a movie, uh, even with the you know thirty dollar premiere access. Um, they are, are. It is not more profitable than releasing it in a theater. Uh, at least that's sort of what we think. And especially now having this opening weekend of Shang Chi, I think that's just going to strengthen uh, Scarlett Johansson's case. Um, but uh, uh, it is more sort of strategically important for them, right? It is uh, if Disney could have their way, everybody would uh, be required to have a Disney Plus subscription to see Shang Chi in theaters as well, uh, but they can't do that. So um, you know, they they would they that building up that that membership base is right now strategically the most important thing that Disney can do, and a lot of that is actually just being reinforced by Wall Street, which. Uh, really rewarded Disney for strong performance in streaming, even as theaters were closed and their theme parks were closed, their cruise ships were were closed. Like all, Disney has a lot of, they obviously don't own movie theaters, but they have a lot of f- physical assets in the real world, which when everything is normal are great assets that are, are very um, uh, valuable to them and to their sort of engagement with fans. Um, but all of that was gone <laughs> for, for over a year, right? And Wall Street rewarded them because they uh, really focus so much on Disney Plus. And that is, I think, where a lot of the Disney in particular, their boldness comes from and sort of rethinking uh, what's happening at, at, in theatrical, because at least from, from Wall Street's perspective, it doesn't really seem to matter. Um, so they can kind of get away with whatever they want. I agree with you. But I think that the difference between Disney Plus and most other streaming services is that Disney Plus has a comparably smaller library. But so th- so when a big release like uh, Black Widow or a Mulan or hypothetically if Shang-Chi had been released on Disney Plus, that there wouldn't be as much of a, a question of whether that would get lost in the mix. Like that would be the thing that they could push towards the front and not worry about um, that being that fading from or fading so quickly from a cultural memory. Whereas things that are being released on Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max, not only do some of them have really substantial um, personal libraries as well as things that they that they get um, uh, licensing to distribute, um, but they're also churning out much so much more content that they are trying to ostensibly prioritize, um, at least in the press, as of equal value as everything else, except for a, a handful of theatrical things um, that are planned for like uh, the autumn and winter for Oscar season. So I think those smaller films that either they are um, financing or that they picked up from festivals, um, I'm thinking a lot of... Uh, Netflix actually has a, a lot of really interesting things that they've picked up from festivals like Happy as Lazaro um, and a cop movie that's that's coming out later. Um, and uh, different kinds of, of smaller indie or art house or documentary films. Because they're churning out so much content, I think what's frustrating about this lack of... Um, or uh, lack of theatrical window slash push towards a, a streaming only model is that those smaller artists don't necessarily get to have the same amount of attention and care um, 
that the things that they would the bigger things that they would push towards the top would. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, totally. And I think this is a, something we know is increasingly a problem, specifically on Netflix, because of just the volume of content that they're producing. Uh, if you just even have you know uh, stars and and maybe even well known directors or creators attached, unless it is getting the focus of the algorithm and getting you know really pushed to people's uh, Netflix home screens, which we know can drive a ton of uh, a ton of views and it can be great discovery for something that otherwise might have gotten lost. But it also means that you know if that. Y- Something like uh, like Jungle Cruise, if it had been on Netflix, might have gotten even more lost than it did on Disney Plus when they didn't really have anything else to promote that week. So, uh, yeah, I think that that is, and I think that that it, it's easy to to you know uh, blame Netflix, but all of the streaming services are headed in that direction. It's just a matter of uh, time until they can be producing enough content. I would say HBO is a little bit better right now because historically they've been better and they have this slate of of former theatrical releases to focus on. But uh, things still get lost there uh, because they still do have more than one major release a week. Uh, hey, Richard here. Just want to chime in here on this fascinating conversation. I actually want to push back a little bit on what Kyle just said. I do agree that streaming service, especially Netflix, have this big problem of not properly promoting their titles. And getting lost in a shuffle is a big problem for the excellent but more less fuzzy movies, the mid-tier movies. But I do wonder if going back to the more theatrical window and using theater as the promotional venue for those movies is really the way to go going forward. As we have seen, audience are increasingly going to theater only for the big blockbuster movies. And just relying on the dwindling number of our house theater, trying to maintain that level of prestige to get people's attention to those movies that are currently being done from Netflix or other streaming services, I don't think that's really a long-term solution either. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. The problem that we experience now of uh, the struggle to allow smaller or mid-tier films um, a certain amount of promotion or prestige or or visibility is that so much of that was impacted by streamings uh, pushing out of physical media. Um, I there was an interview with Matt Damon recently, and he said that there was a time when you could. Um, not necessarily worry about a t- making a ton of money at the box office because you could rely on DVD sales and you could do like basically a second run or a second wind of press when uh, the movie would come out on DVD or Blu-ray. But because there's been such a dramatic shift to a lack of physical media that no no one really cares about doing press again when something hits streaming because when it hits streaming, it's going to jump to it if it's not from a particular studio or it doesn't have any sort of exclusivity to a particular site uh, or platform, it's just going to jump around. And even if it does have that exclusivity, very few, I think very few people involved in production are going to put the effort in. Um, Very few people in marketing are going to put the effort in to do as big of a press tour or a second version of a press tour as they did during like the height of the DVD era. And so I think what gets lost um, 
in this shrunken theatrical window for smaller films is that lack of a second opportunity to um, to really make its assertion or justification of something you should see. That's that's definitely a very interesting point. But better logic wouldn't let us do away with the release window altogether and make it a one-time promotional cycle instead of trying to elongate this promotional cycle where you have a theatrical release promotion and then a, you know, coming to streaming promotion cycle. If that's not sustainable for the industry, I know we want to drag it out. And frankly, I don't think the way the cultural conversation is moving in this, you know, the age of social media and internet discourse, anyone is going to care three months now what you hot take on Sanchez. Like, I feel like our culture is just moving at a faster pace right now. Wouldn't that all be an argument pro the collapse of theatrical window in order to keep movie at the center of the cultural conversation? I don't know that that is true necessarily, because while I agree that I probably no one's going to care about my take about Shang-Chi in like three months or maybe even three we- three weeks, I it seems that the way that the discourse moves and the conversation around certain cultural entities moves so quickly, which I totally agree with, just is symptomatic of the continuing shrinking of those theatrical windows and the rise of streaming because now we have so many more pieces of content to consume. I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, I would be inclined to argue that if all these different services weren't pumping out such a volume, which I understand is somewhat is is designed to be an overcorrection of their lack of 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 an original library that they, that they exclusively own the rights to. But I wonder if if that were not the case, if things both big and small, um, regardless of of theatrical window, would have like more of a cultural staying power. Like, I haven't heard any... I honestly haven't heard anyone talk about Black Widow as a movie since it came out, and that was less than three months ago. Right. Or fewer than three months ago. I mean, I think you are both making good points here. I I definitely know that there are at least some studios who now, rather than spin up two different cycles or maybe not even give something a a home video um, marketing push that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have even done it for certain titles, that they are extending the marketing around something, uh, especially when we were looking at windows that were only like three weeks long in, in theaters or whatever, or or three weeks in, in premium uh, VOD. Um, there's definitely experimentation with that. I do think that the problem that everybody has is that is the cultural conversation moves so quickly. And unless you become uh, the main character for the week, that it's uh, it's going to be really hard for people to even remember that you were around the following week. Um, it's an interesting, I think Shang-Chi is actually interesting. And uh, again, Disney is kind of an innovator in, in this space in a lot of ways, because I do think that there it will come back at some point as it integrates into the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? If you, for whatever reason, you miss, miss Shang-Chi in theaters, you totally forget about it by the time it comes to Disney+, Plus, uh, and you're not opening Disney+, Plus every day because there's not enough content there, uh, that 
at some point, whether it's the Eternals, which is the next Marvel movie to come out, or uh, it's the next big sort of crossover event uh, that, that's going to happen, or maybe it's going to be um, Hawkeye on on Disney Plus, the Hawkeye series uh, that might have some some ties. At some point, you will remember, ah, I missed that one, and you you will go back and watch it. There's a little bit of uh, of future proofing happening there because of that ecosystem that they've built up. And I would argue that even some of the non Marvel, non Star Wars Disney franchises like a Jungle Cruise or a Cru- Cruella might benefit from the same thing of like you might at some point you will be prompted to go looking for a different Disney title and you will at least see it again. <laughs> um, I think it's much harder. And I think the a, a thing that I, I would love to um, sort of get your your take on is uh, the thing that we haven't seen as much is all of those things are our IP that it was created um, theatrically, or I guess in Jungle Cruise, technically from the theme parks. Uh, but we haven't, for the most part, seen major breakout IP, um, with a few exceptions like, uh, like Stranger Things, um, really originate in streaming. Uh, and is that because streaming just facilitates the cultural conversation moving on so quickly? Or is there something else at play? Uh, there are will will we be able to fix that at some point, or are we? Do you think we're still going to be reliant on theatrical to establish those characters that consumers will fall in love with and come back for over and over again? I would be inclined to agree that the way that many of these streaming platforms um, are distributing the rate at which they are distributing their materials simply facilitates um a con- just a, a a very short quick conversation it doesn't seem like they have put in a lot of effort into um investing in something that has uh ip outs or 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 a certain cultural impact outside of that space. I think the closest you could maybe get is the Kissing Booth movies, which are very popular, uh, especially amongst young adults. Um, and there have been two sequels to that. And it's not like they haven't made, um, they haven't developed or made uh, movies that have been designed to set up sequels or anything. The Kissing Booth is definitely one of them. I think there are a, a couple of others. The Fear Street movies, um, were a trilogy, and they were originally supposed to be uh, theatrical releases, but then Netflix picked them up. Um, and I think they're also supposed to be working on um, more Fear Street movies for that that would be um, developed specifically for Netflix. Yeah, um, I I think that they just probably haven't taken the care and time to to do it well. Not that they haven't done it. They haven't done it well. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with that. They definitely, they definitely have tried. Um, it's unclear what is sort of lacking there. And, and, you know, I think the other thing is that's what Disney is designed to do. And for any other studio, it's very, it's, it's not as much of a surefire hit as it is for Disney. They just have a formula that, that works for them, but it also does involve touch points outside of just, uh, being, you know, standalone movies. And I think that that is something that is hard, going to be take longer for, for pure streaming services to figure out. Oh, to, to all the boys I, I've loved before. Yeah. That's another yeah. one that they've, it's that interesting. they've done, which has like a certain amount of, of 
pull within a particular demographic. Yeah, and like two young adult romantic comedy. Yeah, that's interesting mm-hmm. that they're that because that's not something that you would normally. But okay, I take that back. It's the kind of. <laughs> It's the kind of movie that really doesn't work in theater anymore. That's having a resurgence on streaming. And here's where I came out with the shameful knowledge of Netflix Christmas Universe, which mm. is Vanessa Hedges. That is a whole oh, track yeah. I, I love the Netflix Christmas Universe. <laughs> Claws, to this day, one of the best Christmas films ever produced. Yeah. I, so I think, yeah, to summarize what you guys were discussing, I think Netflix definitely wants to build franchise. They know franchise sell in the day and age. So all that is not for lack of trying. The problem is it is way harder to build franchise, especially the kind of four quadrant Marvel-esque level of blockbuster franchise without a pre-existing IP, right? Which is why it's so interesting for me to see Amazon trying to acquire MGM and trying to buy Bond, you know, all those known IP. With that, also they have the whole Lord of Ring TV series coming out next year. There is a lot of effort on the streaming service part to get into the franchise business, but the legacy business still has a stranglehold on those popular IP to the point that there's way less room left for the you know, the streaming service like Netflix or Hulu to develop their own IP in that way. So what they do is they look at the market and see, oh, there's a underserving audience for young adult rom-com and there you can build a franchise easily. And also those movies are, you know, lower budget to produce. Totally. You know, well, I was just going to say, what we, what we probably none of us know off the top of our heads, I would be surprised if anybody did, is how many at-bats they had with something in the same genre before, you know, to all the boys I've loved before it hit and broke right, out, right? right? There were definitely uh, many others that we just don't remember and that have been lost under the algorithm and will never be seen again. But I'm also thinking on a high level and not to period this conversation back to the theatrical window, but the idea that collapsing theatrical window is there's the business imperative to try to hold on to it because it creates more uh, revenue, more profit for everybody involved not just the exhibitor, but also the studio. But is it actually good for the long-term future of movie as an industry? I think that is something more up to debate. I think here at the lab, we tend to think holding on to the theatrical window as is continuing to trend is only going to be bad for the cultural relevance of the whole media. But Kyle, at least in the Twitter conversation, I think you seem to argue otherwise. I recognize my bias towards preserving, if not like exactly a theatrical window, then a theatrical presence, uh, because that is, I, our consum- our, our our ways of consuming media has have changed dramatically, even over the past decade and a half. Not disputing that, not disputing the that being. I'm not saying that that is good or bad necessarily, but I really cannot imagine a world where going to the movies is not something that people will want to do. The number of people going to movies regularly has fallen, um, but I I think the statistics, according to uh, a, a survey from 2019, uh, monitoring 2017 to 2019, it's like people were still going to about six movies a year. And someone brought up a point on on Twitter. Um, mentioning that it's still like a relatively inexpensive thing that you can do on the weekend that you can do with your friends. Um, And that's 
you know, it, it yes, prices continue to get a little bit more expensive, but it's either that or going to a concert, which is fifty to a hundred dollars, or going to the actual theater. Um, and I love the theater, but I also recognize that there's a certain inaccessibility to it if you're going to a show that that is often like seventy, eighty dollars. Going to movie, going to a movie. I think regionally speaking, I think the average is $15 right now. Um, yes, I wish it were less expensive, but it is still something to do on the weekend. And it is still like an an all-consuming experience. And I wish definitely that the larger chain theaters like AMC especially cared more about like the technical aspects of pro- projection and having like a cleaner environment. But I also think that you lose something... Um, when you're just at home and you don't get and you're not getting to sort of have a, a the the palpable experience of, of of the loud sound and the trailers and I I know that I sound like I'm romanticizing it all but I I just can't imagine a world where there isn't that isn't like some part of the culture it may not necessarily exist in the same way in ten twenty years but I think it'll still be there. Because, as as you, you were saying, Richard, it's such a huge uh, sustainability. Regardless, regardless of sustainability, it's still such a huge part of what makes the movies movies, but also what makes them their revenue. I also agree that it'll it'll exist in in, in some way. I think the overarching thesis, at least for me, is like, when I think about this, is what will that look like? And I think that's when when, when it gets into this bifurcation of, you know, at home is more convenient. Um, and based off my neighbors, I can tell you my Sonos system definitely gets loud. Um, and for me, that like that might be like like okay, right? Like that might just be ju- like just good enough versus like the IMAX sound of the Dolby Atmos that's in like the theaters. Um, and so I do agree that it, it it'll always still be here. It'll just be different, and it'll, it'll and I think it'll just be uh, bifurcated in different ways, and it, it'll come down to the consumer's preference of what they want to do. For me, I can tell you ninety five percent of my movie experience now happens in my in my living room uh but like i'll go to see star wars i'll go to see marvel for me like i go to the theaters for like a blockbuster release solely because i don't want it ruined on twitter or reddit right like I, I need to see it day and date basically so that way that cultural conversation and the movie itself doesn't get spoiled for me and i can be a part of that i think you're actually pretty representative of the like the general public this day when it comes to movies, most of, of the consumption is driven by the temple blockbuster releases. And let's face it, like, unless they're going to ramp up more of those temple releases and, you know, those kind of blockbuster fatigue putting aside of that, a movie theater business cannot just run on the Disney franchise alone. They have to be more than that to build a sustainable theater business. And if all you are going to see is just those, you know, one or two big releases per year, I don't think that spells well for the theatrical business in the long run. One point that I just want to circle back to is I think that we can all acknowledge that the theatrical experience and the theatrical window are not the same thing. And we might have just reached a point where those have become sufficiently disentangled from each other uh, and where we can start to think maybe more creatively about how to manage both of them. Um, what I always think about, I, Kyle, I totally agree with you about um, sort of your average movie theater and the the experience there not being as good as it should be and not 
the investment not being made from from a lot of the theaters. I think that's why we see consumers, uh, you know, liking things like Alamo Drafthouse because it is a little bit better of an experience, uh, and and some of those um, smaller, uh, more independent chains that that are have really started to focus on the experience. Um, going back to this studio system idea. I have always thought that the best way to improve the theatrical experience and that this this might also solve some of the the business model challenges that we've been talking about would be for for the studios to go back and and own theaters again because they would have an incentive to uh to make at least make the viewing experience and the audio experience uh, as good as it possibly could be because that would be how they would get directors excited to work with them as as a studio um does anyone have thoughts on that? I think it could have some really interesting business model implications if, if we did go back that way. I I don't know. I don't have like the historical background for this, but I do recommend uh, reading up on the Paramount Decree. Um, Peter Labuza wrote this really great piece for Polygon um, about uh, how studios owning theaters changed Hollywood and changed the, uh, the film industry and how that dismantling also changed the film industry i will say that netflix has bought two movie theaters they bought the egyptian in la and they also bought the paris theater in new york anecdotally it's interesting to see them sort of use that as a as an apparatus to not only exhibit their own films but to exhibit other movies that they don't um that that are not on netflix or that they don't own because they recently did a uh a, a um, a program called Paris is for Lovers, and it it was filled with movies like um, House of Mirth and Belle, Belle de Jour, and and all these like smaller art houses, uh, art house and independent films. So I'm wondering if hypothetically, if Adam's right as as far as studios owning theaters, possibly giving them an incentive to maintain a certain standard of quality, but. Uh, the, the one hitch in that is that the Paris Theater isn't a chain, whereas AMC and Regal, et cetera, are. Yeah, I mean, it's very obvious, you know, tentative steps for Netflix to be able to have premieres and, and other screenings. Like, it makes sense for them to have a, a theater in New York and L.A. There had been rumors forever that Disney had been kicking the tires on AMC. Um, I think, obviously, there for obvious reasons, that wasn't going to happen uh, during COVID when it would have been a horrible thing to add to their balance sheet during COVID. But, uh, now that things are starting to go back, uh, it seems like something like AMC would be way too big for, for a studio to, to want, um, as, at least as a first step, I feel like, uh, but I could imagine, um, someone like a Disney or a universal buying, uh, Alamo Drafthouse, for example. I think that, you know, they have 20 something, I think theaters around the country, and that seems like it could be, uh, is the right size for a first step to see if that actually works. I, the only reason that I, I think Disney constantly is I do think that there would be uh, ways that they could support their larger Disney Plus business. And if you know Disney Plus member like do like what what uh, all, what uh, Movie Pass and and uh, AMC's Stubs and everybody else tried to do, uh, but uh, Movie Pass. I know. Oh, I I should have worn my Movie Pass T-shirt for this uh, conversation. Mm. <laughs> right. However, I do want to say that the 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 big red flag of of movie studios owning movie theaters is that the, one of the reasons why the Paramount decree happened was because of a monopoly and that that pushed out smaller independent theaters um and also pushed out movies that those studios were not um did not make 
and and therefore would not exhibit. So, yeah, everything's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But at this point, if they don't get acquired by, like, a big streaming platform or a studio, like, the probability of theater business is going down, right? Yeah, how long this whole pandemic is going to drag out? The longer it drags out, the less optimistic the future of theatrical looks, in a way, because you give people more time to get accustomed to the home viewing experience. How long does it take for that become a distant cultural memory rather than something that people are eager to really go back into? My question is, which is a, a question to your question, I guess, is the one reason, if I were to choose one reason why I, I like going to a theater when I can, you're there and it's just you and the movie and you're not distracted. Um, you don't have the temptation to do something else, to pause um, and and do your laundry or to or to make dinner and, and passively watch it. It's just you and the movie. And I know that people are increasingly turning to books about simplicity, about unplugging, about sort of reorganizing their life so that it is not around all these screens and all all this um, sensory overload. And I'm wondering if that will end up being the thing that could, at some point, maybe not immediately, maybe it will be more of an incremental and gradual thing um, that has to work in tandem with the theatrical experience being more appealing or... or um, cleaner or something, um, if that will ultimately be a, a selling point for people to go back to the theater. I think it totally is. I think um, it is uh, like foreign language films, for example, are something that I would rather see in a theater because there's no, I'm not looking at my phone. And I also wonder if that lack of distraction combined with the more sort of immersive experience of having a giant screen and generally louder sounds is if that is somehow contributing to this uh, the IP generation and then sort of loyalty and engagement with these characters and these stories in ways that you're not getting as much from home. If it is some combination of all of those things that is really behind the uh, theatrical's ability to establish the you know franchises, uh, I, pure speculation, but. Pivoting to what I know Richard wants to talk to talk about. If that is true, I, I could see an argument that the at-home version of that is actually not movies or television shows, but is actually gaming because it is more immersive. You're not looking at your phone. <laughs> uh, it is um, it is often social. So, like as you you know, going to uh, to the theater with your friends, um, it has a lot of the things, the elements that we're missing uh, from just watching a normal movie at home. Uh, and I wonder if gaming it's, it becomes either generationally or just as a shift in habits becomes more uh, more of that, that IP uh, generating part of the flywheel. Would it be easier to generate new IP from the gaming franchise going forward? If we're tapped out on the superhero comics genre? I mean, that that is one theory that I'm trying to roll over in my mind because I do think that it's with time spent, you're going to spend way more time in a game than you are at a, you know, at a movie and it, that interactivity and the social aspect when there's a multiplayer side of things, there's a lot of, a lot of things 
that are um, set up to really ingrain those characters. And we know that it, it has worked. Like, Nintendo is a company that is built entirely on IP and some of the simplest IP you can imagine, right? Like, what is the story there? <laughs> what is the, the backstory of uh, of Toad in <laughs> the Mario games, right? Uh, it's it's not like there's a, a, a deep character study happening <laughs> there. Uh, and yet, super uh, resilient IP that has been used in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think... Also, not, um, there are enough gaming franchises like the Halo games and Call of Duty and Far Cry that have, that seem to be relatively successful as a non-gamer, as someone who is just, you know, uh, watching from the outside. Um, although I wonder the rate at which that um, people can sort of spawn I, um sequels and and spin-off material uh of, of like one piece of ip and for movies i wonder if um that same rate can be done for video games uh ethically because i am right, vaguely right. aware of the of the stuff that was happening at rockstar yeah it would be interesting to see somebody attempt something like the mcu in gaming where they still have they have enough they have enough lead time to ship quality con titles which also can be shorter than they currently are um but that are are the releases are staggered in uh, such a way that you're you feel like you're getting fresh content all the time even if they you know had had to begin five years earlier to to ship on those dates is Um, that the function of dlc yeah theoretically um but we all tend to only see a you know a certain set amount of dlc for any individual game um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, for a AAA title, you're going to want to be running on the latest versions of the game engine and compatible with the latest consoles and graphics cards and stuff. There are technical reasons why some of that doesn't happen. But I would like to see somebody give it a shot. And not just with, you know, not just with Call of Duty 17. Like, why, like, let's interweave things crossing different genres uh in you know i guess the the mario franchise is really the closest thing to it and there's not really a story but they're using those characters in in lots of different genres of games uh and very successfully so maybe there could be a little bit more of a story uh ongoing story there i i just had a crazy idea so hear me out Maybe this convergence between gaming and the more passive consumer video content like movies or TV show doesn't need to be one or the other. I'm thinking about you know the rise of the metaverse concept and this virtual world where you can step in and just explore by yourself. The idea of turning movie into that sort of immersive theater experience i'm thinking the kind of sleep no more experience where you can you're free to explore the world of a movie or a particular universe but your action doesn't really have any impact on how the story goes but you do can choose your pov or your you know the sequence of your experience of things right the Mm. When you go to sleep no more, you put on a mask, you're just a silent observer, but mm. you still have agency within the set of, of that world, which who, which character you follow, and then but there's still direction to make sure you don't miss the 
pivotal scene, especially mm. at the end, everybody gets directed to the same place to watch the finale dinner scene in Sleep No More. Mm. I wonder if the future of video content kind of go there on, like give you the agency, but doesn't let you dictate the story, which is like a nice medium. So you don't get stuck on mm. a certain level, but there is still this high level of engagement that's similar to playing a video game. Right. Well, I mean, a few years ago, Steven Soderbergh um, did a show called Mosaic, and there are two ways to watch. Um, you could wa- just watch like it as a mini, as a straightforward miniseries, or you could watch a version that was on an app and kind of provides a similar experience that you're talking about, where you can follow different characters and just watch their storylines or see how they interact with other characters. And it was, it, I think, it used um, seamless branching in order to to hold all of that footage um, and you could arrive at different endings and whatnot. Um, And while I think that is really a very compelling um, thing, a a very compelling idea, I think it, I don't think that works for a lot of media. I don't think that works for a lot of stories. I think it um, has to be like really specialized and you can tell if it were to, be just sort of this flat formula that they try to apply to everything, every like major movie coming out, when it would be bad or when it would be sloppy. Uh, and I also, it, this is just a personal thing. I love being engaged with the movie, but I also love the lack of control that I have. I don't want to make decisions. I just want to follow whatever, uh, whatever someone else is doing or whatever world I'm being kind of plunged into. Um, it's not the, exactly a passive experience, but I kind of want to um, sit down for the ride. And with that interactivity, which is not like um, not an experience that I, I am saying is bad. It's just my own personal preferences. I I'm, my mind is already working in a certain way as someone who writes about film and, and is constantly trying to like deconstruct and, and analyze it giving me any more decision-making is just stressful. I totally agree. Turning movies from this kind of 2D experience into a 3D immersive experience will fundamentally change how we view this medium, right? A lot of the artistic value of movies or TV shows come from the framing of a certain... Right. It, it comes from the framing, it comes from the cinematography. Those mm-hmm. are all the choices that the directors and editors and people working behind the scene had to make on their own artistic value. And that is how this meeting is being judged and presented to the audience, right? Mm. If you shift that responsibility to the audience itself, that's a fundamentally different dynamic. Right. Although, Richard, I did like what you were saying about the sort of sleep no more approach where it's less about interactivity and more about sort of choosing your focus. I could imagine, I don't think that's appropriate for everything. But I I feel like where we might, I would love to see something, again, not going to be the MCU, but something in that vein, where certain chapters are more interactive than others, right? Where there are, especially if there's like a, okay, in this part of the story, what we're, we, we really just need to get a slice of life in this new location that we've just been introduced to. I don't know, just let the, let the, the, uh, the audience choose who they want to follow around and who they want to talk to to get more information or whatever. That might be a more effective use for that time uh, than, you know, having the making other choices. I don't know. It's just like, I, I think that we haven't seen enough 
as successful as the MCU has been, and the fact that it's now going into television is interesting, but it should also be in gaming. It should be in podcasts. It obviously is in comics already. Like, I would like a true multimedia approach where the right medium is chosen to tell the right stories. Uh, just like a couple final notes for me on, on this part. Um, Punch Drunk, the the theatrical company that did Sleep No More, they did do a TV show with Sky TV and HBO called The Third Day, which I believe Jude Law was in. And that there's, it was in three or four parts. And one of the parts was this live stream, um, 12 hour experience of just walking around the island that the show takes place in. Um, and the other thing is, I do think there is one, um, one piece of media or are that would make a great sort of um, immersive experience, uh, whether it be a video game or uh, some sort of VR experience, and that's Stephen Sondheim's Follies. <laughs> wow, Follies in VR—that sounds yeah. amazing. It is totally. It's it's basically Robert Altman film. It yeah. <laughs> takes place at a reunion. You could just like put on your headset, walk around the reunion. And sometimes you'd see someone performing, uh, see like Carlotta performing I'm Still Here in the Corner, and you could walk towards that if you want to, or you could stay around and, and follow Sally around, whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the, a lot of stuff that we've seen in VR is sort of what, uh, what you were describing, Richard, is that sort of uh, uh, immersive theater like experience. Um, and I think VR is interesting because there obviously are folks both from the gaming side and from the film side who, who work in VR and are doing interesting work in VR. And considering we haven't really had a killer app for VR or a breakout hit that is like getting your, you know, your friends who don't care about games <laughs> interested in VR and running out to borrow a headset, I'm very curious to see eventually that will happen. Will that be something that comes from from a, a someone who's coming from the film side or from the gaming side and and how interactive will it be? Because uh, I think that will tell us a lot what that breakout is will tell us a lot about like what the future of the entertainment industry might look like. And in concluding thoughts on the future of movie for the near term and long term? We went all the way over here. <laughs> <laughs> the future of theatrical is a theater in your VR headset. No. <laughs> yes. You know, honestly, I wouldn't say no. I, w I, I would check it out. This has been a really great conversation, Kyle. Um, super interesting stuff. Uh, and I think we covered a lot. Uh, Scott's going to have his work cut out for him trying to edit this down into a half an hour episode. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you for joining. Uh, if you ever want to come back and talk about it some more, uh, we talk about this on, on the reg. So. Would love. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that we were able to. I, I was a little worried that I was, that I was like being uh, a little too aggressive, but I'm glad that this came to be a really positive experience yeah because at the end of the day we all love movie we wanted to do well we might mm -hmm. have a little different opinion on how things should go on the business side but as a, our, our format i think we all wanted to survive and mm -hmm. i cannot let you go without telling you how much i love the lobster i see the <laughs> poster behind there I would love to drop in at a creepy little resort and just follow some character around and see how their days are going. But oh, thank you so much for joining us, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Kyle, it was our pleasure. And listeners, this is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. 
As always, you can find myself and Adam on Twitter. I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R. Adam is at Adam J. Simon. And the IPG Media Lab is at IPG Lab. So, Kyle, thank you again. Uh, It was so much fun having you on uh, for this conversation. And listeners, looking forward to the next one. Talk soon, everybody. (music) Thank you.